Hello and welcome to the Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week my guest is Bodley's librarian, the supremo of the Bodleian Library in Oxford, Richard Ovenden. His new book is called Burning the Books, A History of Knowledge Under Attack. Richard, welcome. Now, you do begin with what we now think of probably as a sort of locus classicus of book burning, the Nazis um, burning, you know, prohibited and dissident and decadent literature in the public square. But the origin of this book is, is more recent, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I, although that incident itself came to me quite vividly when I was visiting Berlin in 2018. We have a collaboration with the State Library of Berlin and I went to a meeting there and just happened to be uh, crossing the street unter, unter den Linde, right at the heart of Berlin, waiting for the meeting, w- waiting to sort of go into their building there and stumbled upon the site of the famous book burnings of the 10th of May 1933, which is kind of commemorated by a plaque, uh, quite a, a very moving one, actually. Uh, but it just really struck me that this this didn't happen that long ago. You know, my mum, um, who's happy to say still with us, was alive when that event took place. And it, it struck me that, you know, we, we forget these things at, at our peril. Um, but the more kind of... The the real trigger for me was the revelation during the 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 Windrush revelations, as it were, back also in twenty eighteen, that the Home Office, of course, instigating the the hostile environment, had deliberately destroyed an archive of records which the same citizens who were being targeted by the same government department could have used to help um, make their case for settled status or right to remain. And this struck me as a as a, a very good example of the social importance of the preservation of knowledge. We should say, as, as you do concede in the book, that particular instance, that destruction of archives, it's one of the things that comes through in the book, wasn't necessarily a sort of malignant, deliberate double bind, was it? You, they weren't trying to destroy the evidence these people had. I don't think we know that. I think you, there are, you know, there's cock up and conspiracy theories to everything, and um, this could well be just being a civil servant needing to clear space in the basement of a central London building and wanting to, you know, do we need these? No, probably not. No one's looked at them for years. Let's just get rid of them. Or it could have been, you know, more malicious the intent. And I don't know what the um, answer to that question is. However, the fact is that what I've been trying to do in my book is to draw attention to the importance of preserving knowledge. Whether that intent was malicious or not, the focus that I want to make is that it's important for society to preserve bodies of knowledge like this because it's socially useful to do that. You start, you know, with... with libraries long before we even thought there were libraries or, or most people probably would think there were libraries you go right back to the Assyrian civilization don't you could you t- tell us a bit about this this sort of first great library in history yeah well I I, I actually go um, part of my book is about the library of Ashurbanipal king of Assyria in the seventh century before the Christian era uh, but actually there's quite a lot we know about libraries and archives, even long before that 
that particular library. And it, part of the research for this book was, was quite a revelation to me as a librarian and as somebody who writes about the history of libraries, that particularly scholarship in the last, I'd say, 50 years has really highlighted just how those first settled civilizations in Mesopotamia, how important the preservation of knowledge was to them and how organized record keeping was and how libraries and archives became important for their success as settled societies. And I think the kind of the case of Ashurbanipal is even more interesting because as um, I don't know if you went to the great British Museum exhibition called I Am Ashurbanipal uh, a few years ago, but the curators of that exhibition make a very compelling case that it was the first library that we know of to have attempted to accumulate the entirety of human knowledge as it was understood at the time. And also that we know a lot about how the library itself was formed because there were records in among the cuneiform tablets that were unearthed from the 19th century onwards that tell us how Ashurbanipal actually went about accumulating that library. And from that, we know that he was deliberately targeting the kind of theft or sequestration of libraries that were owned by his enemies, as it were, the neighbouring kingdom of Babylonia in particular. So I think that that was quite a revelation to me, just how sophisticated those ancient libraries were, but also how they were deliberately trying to deprive their enemies of knowledge to make their own decision-making essentially better. And um, that process, that kind of tension, was there... 3,000, 4,000 years ago. So the idea of knowledge is power. Knowledge is power, (laughs) absolutely, and that you make your enemies weaker by taking knowledge away from them at the same time as you make yourself stronger. You make a distinction earlier in the book between libraries and archives. Are you able to kind of set that out very briefly for our listeners? Because it's interesting, and actually Ashurbanipal, if I'm massively mispronouncing it, seems to have been a bit of both, doesn't it? I think archives are about evidence. So they're evidence of the behaviour of human beings. They're the evidence of organisations and structures that collect data or records in order to go about their business. So that could be tax collection, that could be imports and exports, that could be births, marriages and deaths, you know, census records. These are kind of the raw material of history, as it were, but they're also the raw material of government, of administration, and they they tend to be quite sort of un, unexciting to look at quite quite often, but they're incredibly powerful and important. And they also reflect the organisations which created the records in the first place. Libraries, on the other hand, tend to be accumulations of single items, published information, sometimes unpublished information in the terms in in the form of kind of, you know, manuscripts of, you know, correspondence, those kinds of things of, I don't know, famous individuals, but they tend to be more focused on published information, which are accumulated quite often according to uh, policies and, and, and indeed strategies, but that um, form uh, a collection 
piece by piece over a period of time. And they tend to reflect ideas, thoughts, either, you know, creative thoughts like novels and fiction or, or poetry or, the, you know, um, thoughts according to other subjects ranging from, I don't know, anthropology to zoology. The, the focus of your book, which is, is sort of, though it's in a way, it's a sort of thoroughgoing case for why these things exist and the history of them, you know, your focus, the, the lens through which you view it is the attempt to destroy these things. Why do people destroy libraries and why do they destroy archives? Are the reasons different? They can be different, but they can be the same. I think the, the, the reasons are a play often on that core issue of power and the control that the destruction of knowledge gives you if you want to attack a community or a society or if you want to uh, control the past. And those attacks can be motivated by religion, culture or politics, you see that played out in the Reformation, which was, you know, principally a religiously motivated series of attacks on knowledge, or through um, politics like the case I talk about in my book of the attack by the British on the Library of Congress in America in 1814, or in terms of culture, where, you know, the you know, the most shocking, famous, infamous case is the Holocaust. But there are many, many other examples of that. So that sort of attempt to attack a culture, you know, you see that played out in the Holocaust, but you also see it played out in Bosnia in the 1990s. And then you have the kind of um, the control of the past, the attempt to you know, control the narrative that victors often are able to do. And that, you know, that, that's in a sense a more kind of subtle or insidious attempt to control knowledge. You, know, you see that with, if you like, the control of records from the former colonies by the European powers at the point of independence, where records, the, the records of those administrations, and we're talking here primarily about archives, have been very contested and the control of those has been something which you know French, British, Dutch and German governments have all at the point of independence sought to control. Now even when you're not you know making what appear to be you know aggressive political decisions to destroy a point you make particularly with regard to archives early on is that there's always a question of selection, you know, redundant or useless things yep. you know, kind of do need to be, you know, an archive needs to be manageable, it needs to be searchable, it needs to be comprehensible, and things, you know, do need to be sort of purged and trimmed so you don't, you only have the important stuff. This is a fascinating detail that Magna Carta sort of almost <laughs> vanishes through one of these, oh, this is, this is not useful. I, I, I think that's that that's absolutely right. I mean, you know, sort of the past also gives time for things to settle in their importance. After twelve fifteen, when Magna Carta sealed at Runnymede, it sent the original thing is sent to the Royal Chancery and copied out and sent then sent in those copies, which each have kind of, if you like, the same legal status as the original. 
they're called engrossments, are sent to the shires for the sheriffs who have the, you know, the, the, the responsibility for promulgating ro- the royal writ um, to, to announce in their localities. So there must have been, and Magna Carta is reissued a number of times in the 13th century to reinforce the deal that was struck between the king and the barons. And so there must have been hundreds of copies and only 17 of them have kind of passed down to us and their survival has been quite sort of, in many cases, accidental. And the, in, in the book, I, I refer to several of the 12, um, 17 engrossments of Magna Carta that are now in my institution, the Bodleian, have, were thrown out because they had no particular functional purpose at the Reformation when the 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 record keeping room that that it had been stored in that of Osney Abbey is taken over by Christchurch in Oxford and all that the new administrators of Christchurch are interested in is where can they wh- wh- what land do they now own and where can they go to collect the rents uh, and Magna Carta didn't have anything to do with that, so it was kind of thrown in a corner. And a wonderful, his, you know, the first historian of the university called Anthony Wood basically just picked all these scraps of um, literally, you know, rat-infested documents up, and eventually they came to the Bodleian, and we we were able to, you know, show off our Magna Cartas in, in 2015, the 800th anniversary year. No, I... I don't think any discussion of libraries can can be complete. Well, I mean, no discussion of libraries can be complete, but can really proceed without a mention of the thing in everyone's heads, you know, the great library of Alexandria. And the burning of that is a you know, classic instance in most people's minds of, of the destruction of knowledge. And yet, as you describe it, it probably didn't burn, did it? Its decline was less dramatic than that. Yeah, I, I think that's one of the great myths. Uh, I remember um, watching as a teenager Carl Sagan's series Cosmos, and the first episode of that has this very impassioned uh, description of the library by Sagan, who then says, you know, if I could travel back in time to anywhere in history, I'd go back to the Library of Alexandria before the Great Fire, and I would recover all this lost knowledge, science and literature and uh, and mathematics and save it from the great conflagration and of course that conf- that single con- conflagration that is supposed to have destroyed this great library with all this lost knowledge never took place and really the only thing the ancient writers agree on is that at one point there was a great library bigger than any other library known to ancient writers and that by you know, six or seven hundred years later, the library didn't exist. And indeed, if you go to Alexandria today, you know, the archaeologists can't even point to a site that says this is definitely where the library was. But what that probably did happen is that there were fires, um, and some of these scholars now attribute to the kind of civil war between Caesar and Ptolemy, where one of the if you like, outposts of the library near the docks was set on fire accidentally. But that wasn't a great, you know, a massive conflagration which the entire library went up in smoke. What really happened is that the status of the library in terms of, you know, Alexandria itself as a great imperial city 
um, declined. And so it stopped getting that, that royal support, it stopped getting funding, it stopped being seen as so important to the regime, if you like, and it, it declined to the point at which, um, as I said, you know, n- no documents that survive, we can say, oh, that was in the Library of Alexandria. And so I think that's the lesson that I want to kind of draw for our age is that we neglect libraries. They're kind of long-term, underfunding, under-support, lack of recognition of the role that they play in society is symbolic of a kind of a decline of a civilization, And we can see that by looking back to Alexandria. Yes, it's an, it's an unexpected lesson that, that you know, seems to be suddenly you know, relevant to my local concern is the Great Library of East Finchley. There's also a, a sort of fascinating detail when you talk, I mean, you talk in several of the, these chapters about invading armies coming in and very deliberately setting fire to libraries. And one of those instances is the Brits burning the then very young Library of Congress. Oh, this is, yeah, this is a, a great story. Obviously, as a historian, we don't talk about this very much or indeed at university. And I, I think this is, you know, the war of 1812-1814 between Britain and its former colonies included the besieging of Washington, D.C. in August 1814. And, you know, Washington is a young capital. It was only really established in 1800. The Capitol building is the own, only stone building in the city, and its library is the only library in the city. And of course, the besieging British army led by Admiral um, Sir George Coburn, they make a beeline for that building and they find a library room that's in it full of combustible material, which they use to set fire to. And the whole the whole thing goes up in flames. What was really interesting for me was that the librarian didn't do a terribly good job and uh, because the national what we now think of as the National Archives, the documents that were kept in the different departmental offices, they did see what was coming and they actually rented all of the carts and wagons they could find to move all those state records, their, their kind of departmental archives, out of Washington before the inevitable happened and the British you know, broke the siege. But the library staff were kind of caught napping and they couldn't hire. It took them ages to hire to find a cart that they could load with books and wheel out of the city, by which point it was too late. The other interesting thing for me is about the response. So um, the destruction of the library reaches, the news of it reaches Thomas, Thomas Jefferson at his home in Monticello. You know, today it's a couple of hours drive from DC, but it took several days for that news to reach him. He then writes to um, one of the Washington newspapers in outrage. You know, he invokes Alexandria. He says that this is uh, an act of a barbarian nation, and uh, i.e. the Brits, and that he offers his own library as a source for Congress to replace its own sort of information tool that the library had become by this point. And uh, Congress takes some time to debate whether they should spend the money or not, but in, in the end they agree to do that, and they buy 
nearly 7,000 books from the greatest private library in North America at the time, and that is used to kind of rebuild and re-establish uh, the Library of Congress from 1815 onwards. Unless I misread you as well, I mean, Jefferson's private library, which is essentially, you know, hands over to the nation, is that sort of bigger than the original Library of Congress? Yeah. Yeah, no, it, it, it was, yeah, it was about 12,000 volumes. And, you know, Jefferson was an extraordinary bibliophile. I mean, he essentially rebuilt several libraries all, almost simultaneously for himself and was, const, uh, you know, constantly in touch with European booksellers and printers and publishers, but also intellectuals. So, you know, it was a, it was a really, it was a great enlightenment collection and a, a library of kind of real cutting edge European ideas and and it was a you know it was a it was a smart move for for Congress to 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 take up his offer and it it really started the although many of the books actually accidentally were destroyed in 1851 in a fire it really set a kind of tone for the library from that point onwards to which they they continue to pay great attention to today. Yes, there is a theme of libraries being rebuilt and then rebuilt again. I'm in the Great Belgian Library in Louvain, you talk about, and that has a terribly kind of <laughs> tragic history, doesn't it? Yeah, it does have a tragic history, but again, the, the sort of the the message I take from it is that sort of the resilience, the determination to preserve knowledge that's within us all and with our society, within our societies. So, the the Catholic University of Louvain has was a medieval institution. It it had a central library from the seventeenth century, just shortly after actually the Bodleian in Oxford is founded. It builds up a great collection. It's famous in that part of Europe for the quality of its library. It becomes a legal deposit library when Belgium is formed in the 1830s. And then the German troops invade neutral Belgium in August 1914. And on the excuse that they're being sniped at by local residents, which is almost certainly false, they torch the library. And then um, it gets rebuilt with a very interesting international effort which is one of the early dis displays of American attempts to use soft power to influence European uh, politics and society and, and it ends up kind of backfiring on the Americans but nevertheless there's a kind of international campaign to rebuild the library. Germany is tasked actually as a separate clause in the Treaty of Versailles with restocking the books but Americans pay for the rebuilding of the of the library. Others from uh, Australia to Manchester raise money to to send them them books as well. And then it all goes up in flames again in 1940 when the Nazis deliberately shell the library um, at the start of World War Two, and that becomes. Uh, a much more difficult task and one that Belgium says, no, we're going to do this ourselves. We're not going to ask for, you know, American funding again. And indeed, they do rebuild the library and it's still in use today. Thankfully, um, it's it still survives. But that sort of twice burned library is a kind of, you know, for any librarian like me, is an absolutely horrendous thought. As you describe it, 
you know, the, these things like the burning of, of Louvain, you know, not once but twice, helped to kind of galvanize an idea in international law that the destruction of libraries and the destruction of archives, the deliberate destruction of these things, does deserve special consideration as a, as a form of war crime. How strong does that, that notion endure and how strongly is it inscribed in war? Not strong enough, I think, is the answer. Um, it, 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 takes, it takes some shape in 1954 with the Hague Convention when that is redrafted. But it really, it, its moment came, I think, in after Bosnia in the International War Crimes Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, where the charge sheet for some of the individuals brought to The Hague then, like Mil Slobodan Milosevic, Raktan Madic and others, included in particular the destruction of the National Library of Bosnia and Herzegovina in, in Sarajevo and, and many other libraries. And there was a, a, a very detailed study done on the targeting of libraries and archives in Bosnia and in Kosovo done by uh, an extraordinary man called Andras Riedelmeier, who has just recently retired from work, uh, his job at Harvard University Library. And Andras did a, an incredibly extensive survey of what happened to libraries and archives, why they were targeted, the particular instances, some of which included not just the shelling of the National Library in Sarajevo with incendiary devices, but the, the targeting of librarians by sniper fire who were trying to rescue collections from the burning building. And then things like the targeting of land registries across Bosnia, where the Serbs tried to literally eradicate any reference to Muslims owning property going back to you know, the, the, the Ottoman era of, of that part of the world. But in the end, those charges didn't actually uh, appear. So you have this extraordinary detail which maybe shows how how little it was thought of, that I think it's Kate Aidy goes to the battery commander and says, why are you targeting the hotels all the foreigners and foreign reporters are staying in? And he said, oh, no, it was an accident. The shells fell short. We were actually trying to get the library across the road. When it happened, you know, it, you say, I think, this, the targeting of the, the National Library at Sarajevo was not reported substantially. You know, it wasn't front page news. Do you remember this happening? I mean, do you remember being aware of it. I do. Yes, I do. And I was working in the National Library of Scotland at the time. And I remember how kind of shocked we all were. And, you know, we tried to think, are there ways in which we could actually do something about to help our colleagues in, in Bosnia um, from the National Library of Scotland? But it was kind of impossible. You know, um, Sarajevo was being besieged by the Serbs. There was no nothing really that we could do apart from send you know, messages of support. And of course, this was in the days before social media. I was talking to John Simpson recently, who was in Sarajevo at the time, probably in the same hotel as Kate Aidy. And he was saying how difficult it was to actually understand what was going on, even in Sarajevo at the time, uh, because they were really confined to the hotel and actually hearing about what was going on took, took much, much longer now that it 
it obviously does with the internet and social media. And so perhaps that's part of the reason why it took days for the story to appear in the British newspapers. And But it, but it didn't even get to the front pages. You know, it, you have to... I, I looked at the front pages of the Times for days after August the 25th, and it, it, it really didn't get to the front page at all. You have to go well into the newspaper. But, you know, it was an absolutely shocking uh, event. And, you know, several librarians were, were, were murdered by the snipers on that day. You talk also about, I mean, your, your book has several great, you know, librarian heroes in it. Um, among them, the, the people who tried to save the books of Sarajevo. Also, you know, during the Second World War, in the, the sort of Nazi attempt to eradicate these great Jewish archives, you have these extraordinary stories in particularly Lithuania and Poland of how archives of Yiddish and Jewish material were, were saved. Can you talk a little bit about, about that and the, again, <laughs> efforts that had to be renewed and revived again and again? Yeah. Yeah, I, I think these were the most moving accounts that I read and most kind of inspiring for me as a librarian, in particular in Vilna, what we now call Vilnius, where a group of Jews were um, identified in the ghetto by the Nazis and asked to, told at gunpoint to sort through library and archive collections in the city, some of them to be sent back to a kind of perverted research institute set up by Alfred Rosenberg, one of the chief architects of anti-Semitism in Frankfurt, and, and the rest of the collections to go for destruction in, the, in local paper mills. And this group of, of Jews who were librarians and archivists and scholars were called by the Nazis the Paper Brigade. And what they ended up doing, because this was the most horrible task for them to kind of sort through these collections, is that they started to smuggle pages of documents and books back into the ghetto every night in their own clothing. Some of them um, persuaded um, the Nazis that they needed paper to light the fires in the ghetto. Others smuggled things in furniture, which they were, again, the Germans were persuaded that they were needed in the ghetto. And in the end, they, these were, were, were buried in secret chambers underground in the hope that some of them would survive and would be able to recover these records of their civilization, of their culture. And of course, in 1943, the, the Vilna ghetto is liquidated. Um, but a few uh, uh, a few Jews escaped and joined partisans in the forest, and they re-enter with Soviet troops in 1944. They're able to recover um, hundreds of thousands of pages of documents that they risked their lives to to bring back and to 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 bury in the ghetto. Only to find the communists then decide that these collections, uh, a year or two later are anti-Soviet, um, anti-communist, and they're again sent to the paper mills uh, outside the city. And this time it's a Lithuanian librarian um, called Antonas Ulpis who uh, hears about it, he goes out to the paper mills, he turns the trucks around, and he is managing an outpost of the National Library of Lithuania and hides them. It's in a, a former church, and he hides these documents among sort of Lithuanian books and, uh, and papers, including actually in the organ pipes of the church. I thought this was a wonderful detail. 
And he managed to keep it secret, you know, for decades, only revealing it to one or two individuals um, in his in his staff. He actually did, died before 1989 when the whole news was able to be made public. And it was an absolute revelation because one of the um, the institutes which had an archive before the war called YIVO had, had established an outpost in New York and it became the kind of the, the successor to, to the Vilna Institute. And they were absolutely astonished that all these documents had survived the war and they're still now working with the National Library of Lithuania to digitise the collections and, and to make them available online. You can go to the YIVO website and see all this material now which these great, really heroic individuals, like I said, risked their own lives. Many of them didn't, many of the individuals didn't survive the war, but a few did. And uh, thanks to them, their, uh, you know, the culture of Eastern, Central and Eastern European um, Jewish life was was preserved. And, and sadly, in a, a kind of parallel effort happened in Warsaw with a, a group called Oineg Shabes, which was again led by an extraordinary man called Erwin Ringelblum. And what they did was to preserve documents about life in the Warsaw ghetto. So not so much material about culture before the war, but actually what was life in the ghetto like? And they took photographs, they 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 collected you know, children's drawings, all sorts of incredible material. And again, they buried it before the ghetto is liquidated. Ringelblum and the other members of Oineg Shabes were all murdered, but their their documents survived and they were unearthed um, in the rubble, the ruins of um, of the Warsaw Ghetto in the 19, late 1940s and 1950s. How do you think they conceptualised what they were doing? Because it wasn't simply, you know, here are some important Torahs. This was, you know, here are sweet wrappers, here are photographs of, you know, tram yeah. tickets and photographs yeah. of children. I, I think it's just that human desire to bear witness. You know, here is what people need to know, the 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 suffering that we are going through, but they also need to know our humanity. And that expression of humanity is often... Um, made in the form of documents, you know, records. And again, I go back to this term evidence. This is evidence of our existence. This is evidence of the richness of our culture, even under these horrific, uh, inhuman circumstances that we've been forced to endure. We, Our humanity survives and endures through those documents. And, and it, its preservation is part of that human impulse to to record and preserve our humanity that that's in all of us i think and and has its profound expression now, in libraries and on an individual level you get to some sort of slightly trickier ethical and moral ground you talk about the examples of you know i mean the very well-known examples of sort of kafka and virgil and philip larkin individual writers who know their work is of value to posterity or maybe suspect their work is of value to posterity but want it destroyed and in some cases that destruction you know their wishes as with Kafka and Max Broad are disregarded now I suspect as a as a librarian you know your instincts go to be good you know we need these things they they belong to so they're better archived than not but how do you 
sort of square that with the wishes of the individual? I mean, I think it's 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 a very difficult one, and uh, I don't think there's an easy answer to it. I think at the end of the day, you know, the 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 rights of individuals must be must be respected. And um, Max Broad, of course, defended his own decision by saying, well, Kafka knew I, could, I would never go through with the destruction of his, uh, of his manuscripts. So if he really wanted them destroyed, he would never have given me the task of doing it, which, you know, you can ar- argue both ways on. But I think, I, I, you know, I, I think it's quite a kind of compelling case to me. Uh, on the other hand, Larkin knew that um, Maeve Brennan and Monica Jones would go through with his wishes. And indeed, you know, not only were the pages of his notebooks torn out and put through the office shredder in Hull University Library, but the shredded pages were then taken down and fed into the library incinerator, just to be doubly sure. So I, I think, I think you know, at the end of the day, an individual does have the right to determine the fate of their own kind of unpublished work. And of course, I would always urge on the on the side of pre- preserving these things. And there are many techniques that librarians and archivists use, including, you know, we can tie, you know, we tie boxes up with pink tape with notes on them saying not to be not to be made available until 50 years after the death of the author or, you know, whatever that date may be that's agreed with a, a donor or a depositor of, of documents. So, you know, I think there are ways around that. But at the end of the day, these things are private property and, you know, private individuals have a right to, you know, curate their own reputations, I guess. But only curating their own reputations, of course, they're also curating literary history. Uh, Yeah, 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 absolutely, absolutely. So, uh, and that's where I would obviously always urge urge the uh, the side of preservation and use some of those other techniques to get around those issues of if you like reputation management yes you're slightly you're, you're I, I sense you're slightly skeptical about ted hughes's curation of the plath legacy <laughs> um yes well i think scholars are divided onto his own motivations for destroying the last of her journals you know was that as he said to protect his his children from the harrowing contents or as some other scholars have argued was it to protect his own reputation for the way that she um, reported their relationship and his behavior in those final pages before she she took her own life and of course we will never know because uh, the documents don't survive. The, the as yet unaddressed elephant is the fact that most of your book deals with the period when records are made of paper or clay tablets and the move to digital is a colossal shift in the way we we relate to bodies of knowledge and I'm just asking you about a couple of different aspects of this. I mean the first one and it's a sort of maybe a more straightforward one is to do with just, as a librarian, how do you feel confident? How do we negotiate? You know, paper is a is a pretty good technology for preserving knowledge over periods of time. It's vulnerable to fire, but it, you know, it doesn't rot quite as easily. But I know there was a discussion among librarians 
you know, some years ago about microfilm, you know, which we thought was the great solution. You put everything on microfilm and then it turns out the microfilm actually doesn't have as good a shelf life as everyone hoped. Digital formats, you know, corrupt, become obsolete. Does the cloud offer a way of keeping knowledge forever or is that a, is that a dangerous chimera? I think that's a dangerous chimera. I think that digital information is inherently fragile. You know, we create it in massive quantities. You know, increasingly unimaginable large quantities of data are generated every second. And the more that we have the Internet of Things and connected devices and all of these things, the more and more gets created. But it is vulnerable to loss through a whole series of uh, processes, media obsolescence, technology obsolescence, uh, and ultimately through the lack of resource to actually tackle the task. Actually, technologically, we can keep, we know how to keep a lot of this digital information, and I speak to you as partly as president of a thing called the Digital Preservation Coalition, what we lack are the resources to tackle it because it is, you know, human beings have to do that task. And as you say, you know, paper and parchment, papyrus, they generally survive well in regimes of benign neglect. But that is not the case for digital information. You have to be much more active and constantly active in making sure it's accessible over long periods of time. And that means money. And that's where libraries and archives are facing not just the task of preserving the records and evidence of the past in analogue form, but increasingly the vast and more complex task of preserving digital information um, now and into the future. And those two things combined, we at society is just not resourcing us well enough to be able to do that adequately for the needs of society. Is space an issue with digital stuff? I mean, do we need to be buying up just yottabytes of storage space to keep up? Storage space is, I think, less of an issue. Um, it becomes cheaper all the time, and but we do need to to do the same thing that archivists in particular have done, which is to appraise collections. So to look at these bodies of knowledge and decide what we need to keep and what we don't need to keep and to have a kind of intellectual and considered um, approach to that process of appraisal. And it's possible to use you know, you know, AI and algorithms in order to support the task of doing that at scale in the digital world. But ultimately, you need people to be at the heart of that process. And that's what we've not got enough of. So I, I don't think it's memory. I don't think it's storage that is the challenge. It's resourcing people to put that intellectual process in play. As the amount of data we have available, the, the size of our collections of, of printed documents and our archives and get bigger. Of course, you know, there's no point in having a giant store of knowledge unless it's navigable. And indexing, you know, we're, we're a bit beyond the old Dewey Decimal system. Is it a source of concern to you that the way in which we navigate bodies of knowledge now are sort of substantially privatised? I mean, that, that Google is... A, it, sort of controls our access and the priority with which results are served to us. It, uh, you're absolutely right. It really is a concern to me. 
And I think that we as a society across the globe have sleepwalked our way into a situation where knowledge, public knowledge, is essentially controlled by a small number of very, very large and powerful technology companies. My colleague at Oxford, Timothy Garton-Ash, um, calls them the private superpowers. And the private superpowers have not just, um, through their platforms, be it Google or Facebook or Twitter or uh, any, any of the other big Amazon and the you know, Tencent and um, Alibaba and so on, they have the financial resources which they have created in order to, which enable them to innovate and change and develop and really keep ahead of not just libraries and archives. I mean, they're in many ways well ahead of us, but ahead of government regulation and, and control. And that's the other aspect that as a society we need to give greater consideration of and move faster in order to take back control from this small number of highly powerful organisations which are able to control increasing amounts of public life. As this sort of level of you know, data collection and aggregation is possible, I wonder, yes, maybe it's an analogue with what we were talking about, sort of private rights of, of authors over their material against the, the demands of literary posterity and so forth. Is there a tension in your mind between the instinctive desire of a librarian, an archivist and someone concerned with that, to say as much information as we can get, you know, the more the better. We will understand ourselves more fully if we have all this stuff somewhere on record. Is there a tension between that instinct and the instinct of, you know, many civil liberties campaigners will say, look, the only way to prevent huge bodies of knowledge about people being used by surveillance capitalism or a malignant state is to prevent such archives existing in a large centralised form in the first place. I think the answer is more, somewhat more nuanced than that. I don't think it's quite as binary as you've just um, tried to posit. I think it's possible to allow individuals to make the choice themselves. And I think, you know, GDPR, for example, is a move in that direction. But I think what individuals have to be given is the right to choose how their data is managed and to make that actually easier and more transparent and to default to the case where individuals can, can choose to do this. And I think that... Um, you know, aggregated knowledge can be enormously socially useful and powerful. Just take sort of health data. And there's a debate at the moment about, you know, NHS data and how that is used. But anonymised and aggregated, it can be enormously powerful, particularly when married with other anonymised data sets to plot trends in public health and to pot plot ways in which we can tackle, um, you know, social issues around public health, um, as well as, you know, health issues themselves. So I think, you know, we need to kind of resource this much more carefully and to think through the legislative frameworks in which data is 
created, organised and in particular how individual citizens should be given control. And, and one of the examples that I cite in the book is the way that the former, um, that the, the uh, Germany dealt with the records from the former um, communist secret police, the Stasi, and giving individuals the right to access their own information in their form of their own files. Um, and that was a very carefully considered, uh, carefully um, regulated through legislation uh, and a process that was well resourced so that individuals were given the rights over what happened to their own um, information. And I think that's a kind of a way in which, a, a potential model in which we could use to think about how to manage this enormous and fast-moving issue of public knowledge held by the private superpowers. Yes, they, don't, they didn't have the right, did they, to, ha to have their information removed from the Stasi's files, or did they? Uh, no, they didn't. No, no you're, absolutely, you're absolutely right. And, of course, with the right to be forgotten, there are uh, rights. But, again, it's not... The right to be forgotten doesn't give you the right to delete information. It simply gives you the right to have information removed from the indexes that the search engines use. So it's not about the deletion of knowledge. It's about how it's accessed and managed and controlled. And you have a proposal for how we might, you know, resource this sort of thing properly, which is what you call, I think, a memory tax. Is that right? Yeah, I think one of, one of the ways in which I think we should tackle this is by giving libraries and archives greater resources in order to deal with digital pre the challenges of digital preservation. And I think one of the... I think there's a legitimate claim on the the profits of the big tech companies in which a small slice of that could be given back to um, society through funding libraries and archives in order to deal with the challenges that digital information pose for, for society in terms of their preservation and access into the future. And uh, I, I think it's a modest proposal and I would like to see it kind of taken forward as public policy. Are you optimistic that, given the international nature of these companies, any such legislation could could realistically be brought forward? I'm not optimistic, but I think we've, you know, part of my book is to kind of raise some of these issues and to hopefully have them discussed by, you know, eminent eminent vehicles like the Spectator podcast. Well, it's been a pleasure to have you. I hope the conversation continues. Richard Ovenden, thank you very much.